Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. So, tonight, um, the title is One Thing I Ask, One Thing is Necessary, One Thing I Do, which you might recognize all three of those phrases. Those are from different Bible verses. So I thought it would be fun to kind of put those together and look at what do all three of these passages have in common. Because the idea of one thing, like we're pursuing one thing, that like it's a super common phrase to us. If you've been around here or similar ministries for any length of time, you've probably heard this a lot. I mean, it was in like several of our worship songs tonight. It's on the t-shirts that are on sale in the bookstore, in the lobby. Like it's, this is a very familiar concept um, to a lot of us. Um, And I mean, it is for me. I've been around for a while. I've been in the house of prayer uh, either here in Kansas City for about 11 years, and then, like, even before that, I was listening to some teaching. So I'm, like, 15 years into the idea of, like, pursue one thing. So, but I find for even myself, like, I'm constantly, like, we have to come back to this, have to recommit um, to the idea of one thing, have to keep reminding myself, okay, what is this? Why am I do this? doing this? What is this about? Um, it has to be intentionally returned to over and over and over because this is just human nature. Drifting is the default unless we're intentional. I don't care how much you love Jesus, how spiritual you are, for every single one of us, drifting is the default unless we're intentional. So my goal is t- tonight is just to throw a little bit more fuel on that fire and just help remind us to be um, a little tiny bit more intentional um, in our pursuit of Jesus. Um, we have to continually say yes um, again and again because there will be accusation from the world around us. Like, why are you doing this? This is a waste of time. You can, you can love Jesus and just be like not so hardcore about it. You can calm down a little bit. Um, and sometimes even in our own hearts, we find that accusation like this is a waste of time. What am I doing? There's so many other things I could do. Um, but so let's just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's come back to that center just like, okay. What am I doing? What is this about? Look up. Just keep that center focus. Um, And so that's what I hope we can do tonight. This verse, I'm I'm just going to reference one of the verses really quick. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. So when we're talking about one thing, we're talking about a singular pursuit of Jesus. Really, it's the greatest commandment, right? Um, Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Um, so just that, that center, completely obsessed, consumed pursuit of Jesus is what we're talking about here. And we find that a lot of us, most of the time, again, this is just human nature, we can get so easily just caught up in all of the other stuff of life. And for most of us, most of the time, it's really good stuff. We're doing ministry things and we're serving people and we're doing just all these things. We're taking care of our families. We're doing our jobs. We're doing ministry things on the side. We're doing all this stuff. And it it, sometimes, again, if we're not intentional, slipping is the default. So sometimes we can not even realize that we've like, oh, slipped. We've lost our focus. We've lost our priority a little bit. And this is what happens in in Song of Solomon. So I always like to slip in probably a few Song of Solomon references in this message because it's just it's so, so, so relevant to all of our lives. So in the first chapter of Song of Solomon, the, the character of the bride, um, she's the beginning of her journey and she finds herself distracted. She, I'm just going to read this passage here. 
Um, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, do not stare at me. She's talking to Jesus. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect, or ESV says, I have not kept. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? So she's, she's feeling that. We use the phrase burnt out. That's literally what she's saying. I am darkened by the sun. I am sunburned because I've been out in the hot sun and I just feel fried. I feel empty. I feel distant from you. Um, I've been taking care of everyone else's vineyards, doing all these good things, all these expectations that everyone else like holds me to these responsibilities. And in the middle of that, my own vineyard, my own heart, my own soul, I've kind of neglected to take care of. So she's crying out to Jesus, tell me, you're the one I love. I love you. I love you. I know I love you. You know I love you. This love is real, but I feel so distant from you and I have a problem right now. So she's really saying like, I need Psalm 23. I need you to be my good shepherd. I need you to tell me where you rest your sheep at midday. Um, I need to find that place of rest in your presence. I need to come back, come back to one thing, really. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? She's saying, I don't want to live with a veil between us. I don't want to live with this distance anymore. Why should I? There's no reason. Like, this has already been bought and paid for. We're supposed to be able to have intimacy here, and yet I'm living with this distance between us. This isn't okay. Help me get rid of the veil. Help me come back to intimacy with you. Um, and so that, that realization is so, so good to realize, oh, I've been focused on all these other things, and I've let my own heart just fall through the cracks somehow. Um, help me come back to center here. Help me come back to resting in your presence. I don't want this distance anymore. So that's what we're talking about tonight. And this same thing happened um, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation. I love the letters in Revelation. A lot of times, like, there, there's just, it's so good to look at these and just see like the heart of Pastor Jesus. Because before the book of Revelation, I know we've studied it a lot around here, before it gets like end times crazy, which is most of the book, you have these two chapters that are just letters of Jesus, where he, Jesus is telling John, like, take this letter to that church over there, and this letter to that church over there. And he has very personal things to say about what each of these communities is going through. Um, so what he said to the church of Ephesus, I can imagine how hard it would have been to get this letter. They must have just been so shocked and grieved at what Jesus had to say to them, because he commends them for all their good deeds. He's like, you're doing so much good stuff. You're standing against deception. I'm going to read it here. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them to be false. You've per persevered, have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. All these good things. They're standing against this deception, and then their, their, their faithfulness through trials. They have so much like keen discernment. They're, they've got a lot of really good things going for them. But then he says, I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And I can imagine how that would have felt like a knife to their hearts to hear from Jesus. Like you're doing everything right, but you forgot love. Oh, yeah, that was supposed to be the first priority. We remember, we know, we know the first commandment. We know, we know all these verses. We know that we're supposed to love you first. Um, and we used to. We used to have that in first place. And I don't know, we just got busy. How did we just get too busy to love Jesus? Oh, that's terrifying. That's what happened to them. 
And he says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And I just love the tenderness of Jesus here. He's just like, remember, remember how good it used to be. Remember the intimacy we once had. There's a verse in Jeremiah that I could have used in here too, um, where he says like, I remember the love of your youth, the, the, the faithfulness of your youth, the love you had for me as a bride, where he remembers, he remembers with, with nostalgia those days back when it was good and sweet. Um, and he's telling them, remember what it was like when there was no veil between us, when you were, you, were, you were on fire, you had that passionate first love, repent and do the things you did at first. So his, his um, prescription to them is so simple. Repent and do. Remember, repent and do. Um, go back to those first habits. What were you doing? What were you doing with your time? What were you focusing on? What was different about back then versus now? Let's think about like tangibly what, what slipped. Like are you not spending time with me as much anymore? Are you putting priority on some other things? Let's look like, let's look at what changed and let's just get those things back in order. He's like, it's so simple. Let's just get those things back in order um, and come back to, to the one thing, to, to, to putting him in first priority. So if any of us are even a little bit in that place, um, we don't have to feel in any sort of condemnation or shame Pastor Jesus is so, so tender and gentle. He's a good shepherd, and he can just, he'll just help us. He wants to help us stir up that flame again. All right, so the first of the three verses that I want to talk about, um, Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this is probably the most familiar one. It's the one we have on our t-shirts. And this verse was written by King David in Psalm 27. Who, he's talking about his singular passion, his singular desire is to encounter the presence of God in the house of God. Psalm 27, 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And this is a powerful statement, but it's really interesting to consider who it's from because David was super, super, super busy. He was not a full-time intercessory missionary. He was not a Levite. He was not a priest. He was a king. He was like a full-time government worker. I mean, he was in charge of the government, but still, he had a lot of responsibilities. He had a pretty crazy, interesting family that he spent a lot of, I'm sure, mental and emotional energy trying to worry about his family and take care of his family. Um, but in the middle of all of that, he was still able to say, like, no, 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 my top priority is to be in the house of God. My top priority. Everything else is like two, three, four on the list. My top priority is to be in the presence of God, in the house of God, in the tabernacle that I set up in my backyard. That's where he wanted to be. And he said um, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, every single day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if it's a day, I'm there. That's what he wanted. That was, was his top desire. It's so impractical for him. I can mean, I can only imagine how busy the king of Israel was. Um, but that was his top desire. And he, and he took reproach for it. He took lots of flack from his family. Um, I, I shared a few verses here just about the, the accusation of others not understanding. Psalm 69 Seven through nine, for I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me. 
and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So why is he a stranger to his own family? Why is there so much like mocking against him? Because he's obsessed with the house of prayer. There may be a few of us in here who can relate to that. Like if you've ever had those awkward conversations with family or anyone else in your life who doesn't understand why you want to spend so much time at the prayer room, yeah, David gets it. He, he had that with his family. Um, for zeal for your house consumes me. He's obsessed with the house of prayer and therefore lots of other people um, have a problem with him. Um, but in the midst of all that, he, he kept his focus on the Lord. He kept his focus on that God was his reward, that anyone else's opinion doesn't matter. It was God's approval, God's opinion he was seeking. And God called him a man after my own heart. So David, like, we could look and say he was unbalanced. Like, if he wasn't in the Bible and we didn't know that we were supposed to like him, we might look and say that David was super unbalanced. Um, but God loved it and called him a man after my own heart. So I'm just going to go through this um, phrase by phrase. And by the way, when I was preparing these notes, I realized, like, I've never taught this verse so extensively in a teaching, but I have sung through it so many times so that as I, was, as I was writing these paragraphs, I was like, oh, it's just like this is exactly what I do in my sets. So sing your Bible verses, people. One thing I ask. Um, so this was David's all-consuming singular desire. Everything else was secondary compared to this. And you just think like his one prayer request over and over and over. If you came up to him and like, hey, King David, your majesty, sir, anything I can pray for you today? One thing I ask of the Lord. That's his prayer request every single day. This is what he wants all the time, just to be in the house of prayer. Um, and he could have asked for so many other things. There's certainly so many other needs in his life. And I mean, we have a whole Psalms is like mostly David's prayer. So yes, he prayed other things. But this was the thing that was so priority on his prayer list that he said it, it's my one thing. Um, and of course, you can pray other things. But this was so top priority for David, he described it as his one thing. Um, and he could have asked for, for wisdom. He could have asked for, that would have been a really good number one thing. I mean, that was Solomon's number one thing. That's great. Um, he could have asked for provision and help for his kingdom. Um, he could have asked for so many things. But he, he, could, he, he calculated that he would actually get all those other things if he made his top priority just to be in the presence of God. From within that place... Um, he would trust that God would bring him everything else. I mean, that really reminds me of what Jesus said, Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So David had his priorities sorted. He had, he had being in the presence of God as his first and primary thing, his first objective, and from there, um, he was able to trust that God would bring him everything else he needed. And in the presence of God, of course, he's able to ask for everything else that he needs. This only do I seek. So it, it almost looks like these phrases are redundant. The one thing I ask, this only do I seek. And it, it is a little redundant because it's poetry and, you know, repetition is a thing in poetry. Um, but I just love this word seek because it is different than ask. There is energy behind it. There's active searching. There's time. There's energy. There's priority. Um, I, I think he actually had to not only 
you know, ask God, I want to be with you all the time. Let me be with you all the time. And then go on about your day and like not actually rearrange your schedule. He had to take some initiative there to figure out how to like help that prayer request happen. He had to take some initiative to rearrange his schedule, make sure he was in the prayer room regularly. Um, and every day, like I'm saying every day because he said, I want to be there all the days of my life. <clears throat> And he had to continually, even being in the tabernacle, continually reset his focus to, to not only be in the room, but like to, to actually seek the presence of God in the room, to reset his attention, reset his focus, um, continually bring himself back to that focus. Um, and it took energy. It took effort. It's not just something that you, you know, pray and then just like float along and hope God does it for you with zero effort of your will. No, you, ac you actually have to get some effort involved in this. Um, we, but we actively seek the things that we are determined to obtain. It takes active seeking, but you'll, you'll, anything else in your life that you really want, you're going to put some energy into getting. We seek things that are valuable to us. King David put that priority on being in the presence of God to the point that he was willing to seek it actively with his time, his energy, his schedule, his effort. And it's violent. Um, it takes an interior violence in choosing that in the middle of so many reasons not to. It has to be fought for. Um, and this is, there's so many, I, I was like, if I put every verse in the Bible about seeking and treasure in this paragraph, that will be the entire message. Um, so I just chose four and it was hard. <laughs> Devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's a few about treasure. Um, Matthew 13, Jesus describes the kingdom of God like treasure hidden in a field where you have to, you have to search for it. It's more valuable than anything. Um, Proverbs 2, 4, and 5, if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It has to be searched for. If you want to know God, you got to take time to search it out. There's another verse that says it's um, the glory of God to, to hide a matter and the honor of kings to search it out. So God hides himself, but like a parent playing hide and seek with a two-year-old where you like want to be found, that parent, unless they're, you know, trying to be cruel, they're not going to hide themselves in such a way that the two-year-old can't find them. They want to be found, but that, that seeking is part of, it's part of the relationship. He wants to be found, but we have to seek him, seek him as a treasure. Um, so David put that priority on, on God's presence to the extent that he was willing to actively seek and search for it and rearrange whatever he needed to and put in the effort it took to, to actively seek that with the energy in his life. So what is his one thing? What is he seeking? Um, he actually he kind of says three things. Well, he says one thing with like two sub things. So we're going to look at those. To dwell in the house of the Lord. This one thing I ask, this will I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord. He wanted to be, he wanted to be in the room where it happened. He wanted to be in the, in the presence of God in the prayer room. Um, and I, 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 it's interesting that he says dwell because, I mean, he didn't dwell in the house of prayer. He dwelled in the palace. He had, he had another house that he lived in. Um, and the priests got to, like, there, there's passages that describe, like, and the, this is where the priests sleep. They're, they actually get, get to sleep in, in that environment. 
David did it. He was a king. He was not a Levite. He had to go home to his own bed. But he, he so imagined himself like dwelling in the house of prayer that he described it as though he actually like lived there. Um, and, we, and we joke about that with people, right? Like that person spent so much time there, they practically live there. Like Brad spent so much time in the prayer room, he practically lives there. David had that kind of mentality where people were able to look at his life and say like, oh yeah, David practically lives at the tabernacle because he, he had that desire to dwell there. He, where he, I really think he felt more at home there than he did his own palace. I mean, wouldn't you? Like if you had the tabernacle, wouldn't you feel like that was more home than just like your old big palace is probably, I don't know, cold. Um, but the, but the tabernacle, I don't think they had heaters, but I don't know. Um, but, but the tabernacle, like the, the presence of God, that was where his home was. He would go home, do his king stuff, do all his other stuff. Then he would come home to the tabernacle, to the presence of God. He considered that more home to him than even his own palace and his own bed. His life revolved around that room. I like to think he made that the headquarters of his life. Like, that was the command center of his life. That was the headquarters of everything else he did with his life. He would be in that room asking God for wisdom, seeking his face, making that his priority. Then he would go out and do his king stuff, take care of his family, do whatever else. But then he would come back home to that room. And that was the headquarters of his life um, to where he said, like, I, I dwell there. I want to dwell there. That's my priority. Um, Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. That sounds like continual worship, right? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. There's such a blessing of those who choose to make his house, your house. It's where he dwells. Don't you want to, like, let's dwell where he dwells. Like, make, let's make his home our home. So that's, the, that's what he says he wants to do. Um, so he says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. So once I'm there, once I'm dwelling, he wants to do two things. To gaze and to seek. Uh, so first, gaze on the beauty of the Lord. So until we see Jesus face to face, gazing on his beauty doesn't happen with your eyeballs. I wish it did. And I've heard the stories of people who've gotten to gaze on Jesus with their eyeballs. I haven't had that happen yet. Um, we, for me and for most of us, and even for, for David, we gaze at the beauty of God with the eyes of our understanding, with your eyes on the inside. Or you say your mind's eye, you know, your imagination, whatever. Uh, we gaze at him on the inside and we do that by asking for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to touch us. Um, Ephesians 1.17, we pray it all the time. It is my default prayer. If I come up to the mic to pray, I am probably going to pray this verse like three out of four times at least. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So we ask the Holy Spirit to, to touch us, to open the eyes of our hearts, to give us wisdom and revelation so that we can see him with our inside eyeballs, so that you can see him in your mind, in our heart, um, 
And that really, in other words, is just meditating on him, meditating on the beauty of his nature and character. So what, what is his beauty, though? I used to think of his beauty as, as primarily like the Revelation 4 scene and the light and the glory that surrounds his throne and the transfiguration scene and the, uh, the Revelation 1 scene and just light. We, you, you, the beauty of Jesus is just light. And that's absolutely part of it. But mostly the beauty of Jesus has to do with his character, his nature, his, his personality, his desires, his motivations, who he is. So as we're gazing on his beauty, put simply, we're just thinking about him, thinking about who he is, meditating and rolling over in our minds all the things we know about who he is, um, and just searching that out, looking at it from different angles, asking him questions about it, just meditating on, on the beauty of who he is and just being in awe of the brilliant complexity of his character. Like how are justice and mercy so perfectly, beautifully balanced in his character? And how can the most lofty being in existence be so humble? just meditating on those like almost paradoxes. This is gazing on his beauty. This is what David wanted to do um, in, in the temple, in the, the tabernacle. <clears throat> so he wanted to gaze on the beauty of the Lord um, and then to seek him in his temple, to seek him. We talked about seeking already. It requires energy, intentionality, real pursuit, um, where you have to rearrange some things in your life and you actively pursue it with your life. Um, but it can also mean just related to talking to him, asking him questions. Um, ESV says that he wanted to inquire in his temple. So seek, inquire, whatever word you want to use. Um, he didn't want to just like sit there, at a distance still and like think about God at a distance. He wanted to actively have a conversation. He wanted to engage personally with God. Um, and he wanted that relational connection that was available to him um, to, to ask him questions and hear him speak back. And I mean, if I was the king of Israel, I'd have so many questions. I'd, have, I'd need so much wisdom. I'm sure David was asking all those questions. What do I do about this? This army says that, and this advisor says that, and oh, my kids are being crazy, like God help. So he's in there inquiring and seeking, um, and that was what he wanted to do in, in dwelling in the house of the Lord, to gaze on his beauty and to, to seek him with that, um, that relational connection, that conversation. Um, he wanted to pull on God's heart and hear what he would say. Um, sometimes I like to paraphrase Psalm 27 for in just like the simplest way. This is all I want, to be with you, look at you, and talk to you. That's it. Dwell, gaze, seek. Be with you, look at you, talk to you. Those kind of three things together, or maybe one thing with like, once I'm there, I want to do these two things. Um, that was David's one thing. That was his singular focused pursuit. So those three things, the dwell, gaze, seek, um, also appears in Song of Solomon by different words. Um, but there is a verse in chapter 2 where Jesus calls the bride to arise and to follow him. He knows it's going to be challenging. He knows she's a little freaked out. So he gives her the key. He gives her the secret 
um, to, to staying steady um, in the midst of that challenging call he gives her. He tells her three things. Hide in him, look at him, and talk to him. Um, let's look at it. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14. My dove, in the clefts of the rock. That's hide in him. You're in the clefts of the rock. In the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Look at him. Let me hear your voice. Talk to him. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Dwell gaze seek. Seek. It's clefts of the rock. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice. Psalm 27.4 is in the Song of Solomon. I don't know if anyone else is like geeking out over that as much as I am, but that's pretty cool. These three, these three things together I just think that's so fun when you find those patterns in scripture where you're like, oh my gosh, this connects. It's the same thing. It's different words, but look, one, two, three, it's the same thing. Um, it just becomes so fun where you can find these patterns and you realize, oh, God, he means this. He didn't randomly choose arbitrary words. Uh, David just didn't make stuff up in Psalm 27, 4. Like God, God's serious about all three of these things. They mean something to him. There's really a secret here. There's also a parallel in Jesus' prayer in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. We call it the high priestly prayer. Um, he's, he's sharing a, just such a deep desire of his heart. Um, right before he goes to the cross, where he, he wants us, he, he expresses this deep desire. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. And then a few verses later, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. So this, like, one thing I've asked, it's, Father, I desire. It's the same thing. David has this desire to be with God, and God has this desire to be with us. It's the same desire that David, who was the man after God's own heart, tapped into a desire that was expressed by the son of David centuries later. Because David was the man after God's heart, and he, he tapped into, he, he knew that desire in God's heart. Um, so even in this, this, this John 17, I was looking at this, and like, do we have, let me see, do we have all three things again in this passage? And it's a little bit more of a stretch, but see what you think. See if you think these are those three things again. Uh, maybe with me where I am, dwell, right? To see my glory, that one's pretty clear, to, to gaze on his beauty. And then a few, a few verses later, it says, I made known to them your name. That, that sounds to me like the seek and inquire, where we're seeking him, we want to know him, we're asking him questions, we're asking him to reveal himself. And Jesus says that, like, I revealed myself to them. So it's like his answer to the seek and inquire. Uh, I think this is the same thing again. I think this is the dwell, gaze, seek all three of those together again in John 17. So this is David's one thing desire to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze on his beauty, to, um, to seek him in his temple. So that's the first of the three verses I wanted to go through tonight. The second verse um, is the second most familiar, probably most likely, um, verse with the phrase one thing. And this is from the story of Mary of Bethany. Um, this is, we see Mary three times in scripture. This is the first instance where we first meet her in scripture. Um, and this is the setting where her sister Martha has invited Jesus into their home. And Martha is working on preparing 
dinner or whatever. And it's not, remember, it's not just Jesus. He has like a ton of disciples. And if you've seen the chosen, like there were probably more than 12. There were like a bunch of people that followed him everywhere. So who knows how many people um, uh, Martha was focused on preparing dinner for at that moment. So she's like meal plan in her head. She's like got to time the cooking of this to bring that out of the oven. And she's, if you've ever made a large dinner for a lot of people, like it's a lot of work and a lot of mental effort to prepare. Um, and, and so she's distracted with much serving, understandably. Um, and, and Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Um, and so Martha goes up to Jesus um, and says, Lord, do not care that my sister, my sister, Jesus, my sister has left me to serve alone. Hopefully she said it in a little nicer than that, but like, I'm sure that's what she felt like. Um, Tell her then to help me. And then Jesus, he has just this so tender response to her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. He's so gentle, but he sets the record straight. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Jesus actually defends Mary. In this, the middle of this, this accusation um, that she's, she's abandoned her sister to serve alone, Jesus defends Mary's choice and says one thing is necessary. She's chosen the only important thing in this situation. The most important thing here is to sit at his feet and listen to his words. So Mary's she's sitting at his feet. This is the posture of a disciple, um, where when you would be a disciple learning from a rabbi, you would sit at their feet. It wouldn't be a classroom. It would be you sat at their feet. Um, and so she's taking that posture of a rabbi's disciple, which a woman did not do. <laughs> I actually one time looked up what some like rabbis of the time had to say about a woman studying under under them as a disciple, and they were not. There were some harsh words that certain rabbis had to say about the concept of a woman being a disciple. That was not culturally acceptable at all. So she's already pushing past that cultural boundary. Um, but she's, she's a living example of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's all about the word of God. It's like the longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible and how awesome the Bible is. It's King David going on and on, how I love your word. It's my meditation all the day. It's my delight. It's like, honey, your word is amazing. Your word is life. This whole thing where David is obsessed with the word of God Mary is living that out. She's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his words. His words are her delight. More Song of Solomon. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is, is sweet to my taste. That's the same as Psalm 119, verses 16 and 103. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So Mary was living this out where she was finding her delight um, in his presence, sitting at his feet, listening to his word, um, just savoring it, savoring his word. Um, it's like we were talking about David meditating on the beauty of God, except she got to like meditate on the beauty of God like while seeing the beauty of God in front of her with her eyeballs. That's cool. I'm looking forward to that someday. 
<laughs> but there is, there is this accusation that she was, it was a waste of time. It was so irrational, and um, there are so many good reasons, quote-unquote, good reasons for Mary not to do what she did. It seemed irrational. Um, one, like I said, she's going against her culture for a woman to sit, sit at the feet of a rabbi. Um, she's then her sis sister considers it a personal betrayal that she's not helping her. So there is this cultural pressure and relational pressure for Mary not to take that position at Jesus' feet. Um, but her hunger to be with him, there was a desire. There, she had, I don't know if she thought of it in these terms. I don't know if she thought of Psalm 27.4. But that spirit of Psalm 27.4 was alive in her where one thing have I asked or desired be with him, to dwell. I don't have to go to the tabernacle right now. He's in the living room. <laughs> if Jesus is in the living room, forget the tabernacle. We're going to sit down in the living room. That's where she wanted to be. That was her desire. And Jesus defended her um, in that. But I want to look at Martha because I have, Martha's she gets kind of a bad rap here. I don't want to think of Martha as the bad guy because I think I'm Martha. I think we're all Martha more times than we wish we were. Um, she feels frustrated and hurt and abandoned and disrespected. She's, she's, she's trying to do all the right things. She is the, the hostess in her home taking care of all these, all these people who've come in. And she invited them there, so she's responsible to take care of them. I mean, if Mary and Martha would have both sat like they would have had to order pizza. Like, there would have been, like, no dinner ready. <laughs> um, but, um, so, like, I understand what she was trying to do, but her heart was out of alignment in it. Um, Jesus said she was distracted by much serving. Serving is good. Like, we're supposed to serve. Um, but there's a way to do it without being distracted by it. We've got to figure out how we can do the things to serve God that he's called us to do and not let the things that he called us to do distract us from him. She was distracted by much serving. And Jesus, after her outburst, so she's, I actually, I looked long ago, I looked up the word in, in Greek where it says Mary came up to Jesus. and Like she approached him, that word for came up. It's used in other contexts related to angels angry Jews, and the day of the Lord. <laughs> Literally, that word relates to like sudden, angry, like dramatic things exploding on you. <laughs> so Martha came up to Jesus. And, and after this, Jesus just responds so gently to you. He doesn't even, he doesn't even directly rebuke her, but he just, he like, he goes straight for her heart. And he says, you're anxious and troubled. Like he has so much compassion on her in that moment. He sees her heart. She is anxious and troubled about many things that she's had the best of intentions, but in the midst of that, she's misplaced her priorities. And he defends Mary. Mary doesn't say a word. In all three times we see Mary in scripture, we see her in this scene, we see her when Lazarus dies, and then we see her when she anoints Jesus' feet. She only has a line of dialogue in scripture the once when Lazarus dies. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. That's the only thing she says in scripture. She doesn't even defend herself at all here. Um, she stays completely silent, and Jesus speaks up for her. He defends her. Um, 
he says that she made the right choice to waste her time, seemingly waste her time at his feet. And it isn't, it isn't the practical choice. It's not the most helpful choice in, the, in a practical sense. But Jesus says it's the only thing that actually matters. It's the one thing necessary. And he says that she's chosen the good portion. So a little bit more Greek for you here. The Greek word for portion um, it doesn't only mean like she 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 made a good choice. She was a good idea. Um, it means it it's related to actual inheritance. So that portion is the same word used in other contexts related to the inheritance that's due to you. Um, so this goes all the way back. I really think there's a connection here to the Levites. So if you remember when. Israel came into the promised land, and God said, like, okay, this tribe gets over there, and this tribe gets over there, and this tribe gets over there. Levites, you don't get an over there. You don't get a tract of land. You get to be priests. You get to serve me, and I am your portion. They didn't get a portion of land. They got God as their portion. And I really think that Mary, Jesus is referring to that. She's chosen the good portion, because she's chosen him. She's chosen him as her portion. Psalm 16, verse 5, this is a Psalm of David, so this is something David said, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And again, David wasn't a Levite. He wasn't included in that promise I just mentioned. But he he knew the heart of God, and he knew that all of Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. He, he said, I want that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that. That's, I'm going to make myself an honorary Levite. I'm going to claim God as my portion, my inheritance, because I want God. And I think Mary had the same heart. Jesus said she's chosen the good portion, which is straight up Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion. Mary had a priestly, priestly heart in her at that time to, to minister to him at his feet, to hear his word. Um, and I say minister to him because he was just blessed that she was there. He loved that she was there. Um, so she took this priestly attitude of choosing his presence and choosing him as her portion, her inheritance, her reward above all else. And that brings us to one thing I do. This is Paul's verse. So later, times of the epistles. Um, this Paul verse, I've heard, I haven't actually ever heard this uh, referenced in, like, in conjunction with David's verse and Mary's verse. Because I think a lot of times we, ha we have all the worship songs about one thing I ask of the Lord, this will I seek. We have, you know, talking about one thing is needed to sit at his feet. Like, I've heard those before. But always in the back of my mind, I always kind of thought, Paul said that too. There's, there's a one thing verse that Paul said and I always kind of had a theory that it was connected, but it wasn't until preparing for this message. I was like, okay, I'm going to search this out. I'm going to see if this is actually connected, see if the Lord will, you know, show me anything here, see if, see if I can conclude that it's actually connected or not. So I'm going to present what I, what I think, how it's connected, and you guys can see if this makes sense to you. Does Paul's one thing verse belong alongside the others? Um, so Paul... I think we can agree he is someone who lived with very much a singular 
devotion, singular pursuit, very, very laser focused in his life, very focused in his life. Um, And he didn't put any stock in his reputation, even though pre-Jesus, Paul was very well acclaimed within his culture, within the Pharisees. He was an up-and-coming rising star. He probably would have had some lofty position within the Pharisees if he had kept going on that path. Um, But he had his encounter with Jesus and his, all of his priorities flipped overnight. Um, and then later on in his life, in Philippians 3.13, this is what he says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And when we look at this verse on the face, it's it, it doesn't automatically look like it belongs with the others. And I think Paul, it's, Paul almost maybe had the, I don't, I don't know if this is for 100% true, but it kind of seems like Paul had kind of the opposite personality of Mary because Mary was very, like we look at her and we don't know a lot about her, but what we do know is that she repeatedly sat at Jesus' feet. So we can look in the scripture and be like, oh, she's a contemplative. She just, she likes to sit and be in peace and rest. And she just wants to sit and listen. And that's Mary's whole personality. I mean, maybe that's true. We only see her three times in scripture, but Paul, we see a lot in scripture and he was a go-getter. He was an up and run, like in this verse, he's one thing I do is strain towards the prize. That's not a sit down kind of guy, but Let's look at the, the context. This makes this what the one thing is for Paul. It makes a little more sense if you read the, the verses before and after. So beforehand, there's um, some verses right before I'm going to read. So this is the passage, Philippians 3, 4 through 8. I'm on the top of page 7, um, where he lists his resume prior to knowing Jesus and how impressive he was as a Pharisee. Um, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So he's not using the phrase one thing here, but you kind of get some of that attitude that nothing else matters, only knowing Jesus. So he threw away what was considered reputable or valuable in his culture um, that, that reward in the eyes of the world that he would have gotten for pursuing the life of a Pharisee. Um, and he let it all go for the sake of pursuing a relationship with Jesus. And he's, he's pursuing that relationship, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Um, he's, that's what he's straining on towards. That's what, um, that's what his priority is. So he says, forgetting what's behind, like all the being a Pharisee, and that's, that's a past life. I'm not even thinking about that anymore. I'm pressing forward. So here's what he's pressing forward. He says, straining towards what is ahead. So his attention is looking ahead, not only on you know, like the immediate future, the days and weeks coming, um, but he's, he's set, got his eyes set on eternity 
Um, and Brad talked about this just last week, the, the, the focus on eternity that Paul had, um, the focus on the, the prize that's coming. Um, living, these, these are like the two things Brad was talking about last week, your resurrected body and dwelling in heaven for eternity with God. Um, this is his motivation that causes him to strain forward with active energy. This is that straining, that's, that's the seeking that David was talking about, that active energy of, of putting priority on seeking God above all else. Um, so a few verses later, um, after this one thing I do verse, he elaborates a little bit more and he says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that we'll, they will be like his glorious body. So this, this is Paul's motivation. This is what he's thinking about. This is his daydream. This is his passion. This is his pursuit. This is, this is what he would think about in the shower. This is what Paul was obsessed with, thinking forward to Jesus is going to come back. I'm a citizen of heaven. I get a resurrected body someday. Um, and I, I imagine, especially as Paul went through all the persecution he did and, you know, the toll that took on his physical body, he was looking forward to that resurrected body. That was where his focus was. This was his reward. Um, so he says, press on toward the goal to win the prize. So what's his prize? Um, he's trusting in Jesus to give him his reward. He's not looking for the reward of his culture, any accolades that his um, that the world around him could give uh, like Mary choosing the good portion choosing Jesus as her inheritance Paul is seeking God for his prize which I think is kind of a different way of saying the same thing um, no matter how foolish his life looks to those around him um, he's setting his hope fully on 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 Jesus he could have he absolutely could have stayed the course as a Pharisee and pursued that life and been all kinds of well-known and awarded in this life. Um, and something Preston likes to say that I think he got from John Stokes is God will often let you have whatever you pursue. If you want a reward in this life, if you want um, that, then you're probably going to get it. God will, God will probably let you have whatever you really want to put your energy into pursuing. Um, and so Paul made that choice. He decided he wanted to put his energy into pursuing Jesus above all else. Um, there's a line in Narnia where Aslan says, all get what they want. They do not always like it. Which I think is another way of what Jesus, saying what Jesus said, um, you know, they have received their reward in full. If you do all these things to be seen by men and what you want is to be seen by men, congratulations, you have been seen by men. That is your reward. I hope you're happy with it. That's all you get. And Paul didn't set his priority on being seen by men. He set his priority on knowing Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, making him his reward. <clears throat> And it was in the middle of a very busy ministry life. He was always, he was, like I said, he was not a sit-down kind of guy. He was always moving, always going, always next city, next letter, next church, always doing something. Um, but that wasn't his goal. That wasn't his life vision. 
His life vision was to know Jesus. His life vision was to have a heart on fire with love for Jesus. All the ministry accomplishments was not the goal. Those were, those were just his assignment. That was something God gave him to do, and he did it faithfully. But that wasn't, like, what made his heart come alive. In the context of this chapter, we really can see that his, his passion, his pursuit is to know Jesus. If we just read that verse by itself, like, one thing I do, I press on towards the goal, and then we stopped reading there and didn't read the verses before, we might think like, oh, the goal of everyone on earth shall be saved, and the gospel shall be preached, and I'll plant 50 more churches before I die. Like, or he, he did, but that wasn't the goal. The ministry accomplishments were not his, his goal. His prize was knowing Jesus. Just like he said that all his previous religious accomplishments, all the Pharisee life, counted that as nothing. I think if we asked him, like, post-Jesus or while he was in his ministry phase of life, if we said, you know, so Paul, like, aren't you so proud of yourself now? You've done all these things. He'd be like, Psh, that's nothing. Like, who cares? Like, I did what I was supposed to do, I hope. But, like, my, my prize is knowing Jesus. That's what I want. That's what I'm seeking. <clears throat> And it reminds me a lot of um, 1 Corinthians 13, um, which we're familiar with this chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, um, I'm nothing. And it just it goes on, all these things. If I do this, I'm, but without love, I'm nothing. If I do that, but without love, I'm nothing. Um, and this passage is, I think, definitely primarily about love for others because that's kind of the context. Um, but, I mean, what is love for others other than overflow of love for God. That, that's what everything else comes from. Um, so I think we can still apply that and look at, if I have all these mystery accomplishments, but have not love for Jesus, what's the point? Which is Revelation 3 in the, the church in Ephesus, what Jesus said, you've done all these things, but you've forgotten your first love. If you're tending everyone else's vineyard, but you've neglected your own vineyard, what's the point? So I kind of want to wrap this all up together and look at kind of just compare, compare and contrast David, Mary, and Paul and how their stories kind of diverge or align. Um, so I don't think it's an accident that, that the Holy Spirit gave us the same phrase, this one thing phrase in three different passages about three different people. All three of these people meant so much to the Lord. Like, these are his friends. He has a special place in his heart. And he attached this one thing phrase to each of their lives. But their lives looked different, but their hearts were the same. So they did have very different assignments. They lived in different places at different times, had a different context that they were lived in, living in and doing ministry in. Um, but they had that same heart to prioritize God's presence no matter what. Um, so David was a king, like we said, full-time government worker. Um, he had a particular passion to build the house of prayer, so he had access to the tabernacle because he built it. Um, Mary was a young woman who lived with her family. Um, we don't actually know what her ministry was in terms of, you know, did she preach the gospel after Jesus ascended? We don't know. Like, I'm, I'm assuming she did lots of wonderful things, but... Was that a big, dramatic public ministry, or did she just faithfully serve her local church? We don't, we don't know what her ministry legacy, so to speak, was, because Scripture only gives us those three devotional encounters she had with Jesus. We see her sitting at his feet, 
three times. And, and Jesus loved that and put that in scripture and thought that was the most important thing we need to know about Mary of Bethany. So I'm okay if I don't know what happened the rest of her life, although I do want to ask her someday. And then Paul, of course, was an internationally known church planter and evangelist. He was, he was always traveling, always busy, very well known, uh, very sought after, um, both within the church with respect and with, from the not church with what to kill him. So he was very sought after in a lot of ways. Um, so they have very different assignments, very different shapes of their ministry, but they had the same heart to prioritize God's presence ab- above all else. They had different opportunities to encounter God, interact with God in different kinds of ways. David, of course, was Old Testament, pre-Jesus, so he had a very different kind of relationship with God, didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, didn't know the name of Jesus. I missed out on a lot there, but he had the tabernacle. He's actually the only one of the three who had a regular prayer room he could go to regularly and like he could have a sacred trust the other two didn't really have that opportunity because even the temple in Jerusalem that Mary and Paul could have gone to was a lot different from David's tabernacle um Mary lived during Jesus ministry so she's the only one of the three who knew him in the flesh got to have him in her living room um get to sit at his feet see him with her eyeballs other than Paul's Damascus encounter, of course, and further encounters that he had later. But she, she was the only one who knew him in the flesh during his ministry, which is a really special opportunity. Um, and Paul didn't know Jesus until after his ministry, until after he descended. So he's kind of in the category that we are, where we're the church in the church age, just knowing God, just gazing on him with the eyes of our understanding, with our inside eyeballs. Um, so they had different opportunities to encounter God, different kinds of, of ways that that was available to them, but they had the same priority. Um, and as you look at their lives, you can see it was expressed a little differently based on their context, um, but they had that same heart. David spent time seeking God in the tabernacle daily, despite all his other responsibilities. That was his one thing, passion, to, to dwell in the house of the Lord. Mary postured herself at Jesus' feet every chance she got. We, we see the three times, and if you, if you haven't noticed this, go back and look, because um, in, the, in the story we were talking about, she sits at Jesus' feet and listens to his words. When Lazarus dies, she runs out to the road to meet him and falls at his feet, so she's at his feet again, and then, of course, when she anoints him before his burial, she's at his feet. So every chance she got, every time we see her, she's at his feet, um, in the face of all kinds of expectations and accusations. That was what she consistently chose no matter what. Paul maintained a vibrant prayer life and made knowing Jesus his top priority um, above his other ministry focuses. And I, I, I thought about like, let's look up a ton of verses about Paul's prayer life. Then I was like, that would be so many verses. I don't know if I want to do that right now. But most, if you want to look up verses about Paul's prayer life, like the laminated sheet on the podium of our apostolic prayers, like most of them are Paul's prayers. He had a vibrant prayer life. He's, he's frequently, he's not only like planting a church and then leaving, he's still praying for that church. Um, Paul's prayer life was a huge, huge, huge part of his, uh, his, his ministry and his walk with the Lord. And all three of them had their sights set on the same reward. So they, they freely chose God as their inheritance and reward um, rather than anything else the world could give. 
David, we have to kind of go to Psalm 16 for this one, but I love it. David said in Psalm 16 that God is his chosen portion. Mary chose God's presence as the good portion, as her inheritance. Paul pressed on toward the goal of the return of Jesus and the reward he would bring, including a resurrected body and eternity in heaven. That was his, that's what he, that was his motivation. That was what he set his sights on. So all three of them chose the eternal, chose God as their reward rather than any other reward in this world. So with the examples of David and Mary and Paul, I want to think a little bit about what it means for us today to choose a one thing pursuit of the Lord, what it means to, to choose that lifestyle. Because like, like we started off saying, intentionality is necessary, otherwise you will drift. That's just, that's just human nature. We constantly have to be coming back and recentering. Otherwise, drifting is default. Um, so the goal is to keep the reach alive. And I want to say it that way because it will look different season to season and person to person. Um, so I don't think... I wanted to be careful in this section not to make like a checklist of, you know, your free time and your this and how many sacred trusts you're doing and this and this and this. And like, I didn't want to like make a checklist where we can measure ourselves against it and be like, am I or am I not doing the one thing? That's not the goal. The goal is to have that reach alive in your heart because it looks different person to person and season to season, but is that desire alive? Are you reaching for more of God? Are you reaching to, to know him and choose him no matter what? Um, and continually talk to him and see how he's inviting you um, into a deeper reach, into um, maybe more, maybe some different habits, some different attitudes, whatever he wants to say, whatever way he wants to invite you to reach for him, let God invite you of the certain ways to reach for him. I'm not here to tell you the certain ways to reach for him, but I am here to say, have a conversation with him um, and just invite him to invite you to, to reach for him in whatever ways he wants to. So um, this, isn't, this shouldn't be an area of shame or pressure or condemnation because this is something that I can do to myself very easily if I'm not careful. Um, like I have this like golden standard in my mind of what pursuing God is supposed to look like. And if I'm not doing that, then I feel like a failure. So I kind of have to keep reminding myself, like, that's not what this isn't about. That's not what this is about. This isn't about um, that pressure and that shame. We want to be drawn forward um, by desire. And that was kind of a phrase and a mindset shift um, God gave me two or so years ago, um, two or three years ago, uh, this idea of being drawn forward by beauty rather than being pushed from behind by pressure. Because um, was, there was someone I was discipling, and I was trying to help them, like, come on, choose God, make good choices. And I realized I was, like, like pushing from behind. And then God was like, that's not going to work. Like, come on, the other side, like, draw them with beauty. Like, life in God is beautiful, I promise. Like, let me entice you with beauty rather than, like, trying to shove them from behind with pressure. But that's, we, we have to think of ourselves in the exact same way. Like, God's not trying to shove us from behind with pressure, and we need to not shove ourselves from behind with pressure. Let's be drawn forward by beauty. Like, like Paul said, for like, strain forward for the upward call in Christ. Let's look forward. Let's let, let's let what's up pull us up. Um, so anything in this section is not pressure or condemnation. These are some 
ideas of things to talk to the Lord about um, that might help you keep that reach alive. Um, I put this verse from Song of Solomon in here. And you've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, one jewel of your necklace, that small glance, that weak reach, that as much as you can give, that as much as you can reach, um, as much as you have strength to reach, that counts. That weak reach is real. So one thing um, that's going to help us keep that reach alive is a regularly set aside focused time to be with the Lord. For David, that was dwelling in the tabernacle all the days of his life. He had that. I'm pretty sure he had that like daily scheduled time that he would be there regularly. And all his advisors and everyone know like, oh, we can't have that meeting with David right now. He'll be back in an hour. He's at the tabernacle. And and every day he had that. And it was in the schedule and everyone knew. And he had that as a priority. Our relationship with God cannot thrive unless we have regular focused time with him. And I just spent all this time saying, like, I'm not giving you a checklist. And I thought about this statement. Our relationship with God cannot thrive unless we have regular focused time with him. And I was like, I think that's an accurate statement. That can look different ways. But I don't think your relationship with God can thrive unless you have some version of regular focused time with him. And that can, again, look different ways. Um, But... We happen to have this wonderful thing called the prayer room. So there you go. That's a wonderful tool to help you choose that, to have regularly set aside focused time with God. Um, And David, David said that his one thing is to dwell in the house of the Lord. And for him, in his context, that's where the presence of God rested. And yes, we have the presence of God with us wherever we go. But there is something different about a house of prayer that's set aside to be a resting place for his presence. Spending time with God alone at home or while you're driving is so valuable and so good, and I hope you're able to do that. Um, But there is something different, and I'll say that boldly. There is something different about coming to a house of prayer. It's that energy, that effort of seeking, where you actually have to get in your car and drive to be in a room in blue chairs with other people Um, And you're seeking God together as a community. There is something different and special about that. To join a group of people that's been set apart for 18 years to create a a resting place for the presence of God. The room has changed. We haven't been in this particular building for 18 years. But whether the room was the living room or Pioneer or Livermore or here, it's been the same room, so to speak. This place has been devoted to God for 18 years, and there's something really special about that, something really remarkable about that that opportunity um, to set aside regular time to be in this place together with others and set aside that time in your schedule to seek God. Um, So that's why we talk about doing a sacred trust. Um, So that's a very valuable tool to, to keep that reach alive in our hearts. And this is something Jesus did. Um, Luke 5, 15 through 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. There's, there was one episode of The Chosen where it showed all the crowds coming and just the pressure and demand that put on Jesus, like person after person standing in line wanting him to minister to him. And he did it willingly, but like in his flesh, that was exhausting. Um, and so in the middle of all these ministry demands, um, It says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. 
So Jesus, in the middle of demands, in the middle of tending all the other vineyards, he did not neglect his own vineyard. He set aside that time um, to withdraw to lonely places and pray. Another thing we can do is check our hearts for distractions. Just like Jesus told Martha that she was anxious and troubled about many things. And again, the problem wasn't the many things. Like a lot of us are doing many things, and most of them I think are good things. They're things that God called us to do that we should be doing, but we got to make sure we don't become anxious and troubled by them in a way that distracts us from the one thing needed. Like, I really think that if Martha had had in her heart a desire to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary did, Jesus would have worked it out. Like, it would have been okay. People would have gotten fed and had their dinner that night. Um, and I, we don't know what happened in the rest of that scene after Jesus said that to Martha. I really hope that she took the hint and, like, came and, and joined the group in the living room. I really hope she did. But there are many things that can steal away that place of devotion in our hearts if, if we give in to anxiety or worry about them. Let them consume our mental um, attention. Matthew 13, 22, this is Jesus talking about the, the parable of the sower. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So our enemy here is the worries of this life. And you're going to have a life. There's stuff in your life that is going to happen. It's unavoidable. But the worries of this life, the being anxious and troubled over it, um, we got to make sure that that um, doesn't suck up our attention that we can't give focus to the one thing. So this is a good idea to often reevaluate our lives, to invite the Lord to search our hearts. Is there anything that I'm anxious and troubled over that I'm giving too much emotional space to? Or maybe there are some things you're overcommitted to and you need to take some things off your schedule and actually turn down some opportunities and say no to some people asking you for help with things. Maybe there are some things that you need to get your schedule a little less cluttered um, to, to pursue Jesus wholeheartedly. Um, or maybe you just need to figure out how to shift your heart in the midst of that. You can have that conversation with the Lord. Um, but we want to make sure that being anxious and troubled over many things doesn't suck out that place of devotion in us. Um, the worship leader can come up wherever you are. Um, Another thing we can do is invite God into everyday moments. So a lot of times, um, you know, just while you're doing things throughout your day, we have some mental space, um, whether sometimes we might like to listen to music or listen to a podcast or something, um, but maybe that's an opportunity to think, what can I, how can I use that mental space I have right now while I'm doing dishes, while I'm driving? How can I give that mental space to the Lord and use it to seek him right now? Um, Sometimes I like to do things alone, but intentionally do them with Jesus. Um, I'm going to tell a story. It's going to sound really dramatic with this music. Uh, <laughs> but there is a time I was at Disneyland with a friend, just me and this one friend. And then my friend left at the end of the night, and I was about to go to the parking lot and go home. But then I realized, I'm at Disneyland. And I 
don't have to leave right now. I'm going to go back and go on another ride. And so just by myself, I went back into the park and I got in Space Mountain, which is my favorite ride, and I just did it with Jesus. And I just stood in the line and listened to worship music. And then I rode the little roller coaster um, with Jesus. And I mean, I intentionally, like I was talking to Jesus the whole time and just enjoying going on my favorite ride with Jesus and just enjoying imagining like someday I really am going to fly through space with you, Jesus. And I just enjoyed that so much. Like we can invite him into those everyday moments and just talk to him throughout whatever we're doing. Finally, um, we can declutter our time, like particularly our free time. And there's lots of things that we can do that are great mindless activities to kind of decompress that emotional energy that's great there's lots of healthy hobbies we can do um, but sometimes those do become overbearing in our lives and so that's maybe an opportunity to ask God is this too much are there things that I should readjust in how I'm spending my free time um, to to clear up some mental and emotional clutter in my mind and my heart um, and finally really this should probably be the first thing that we do is ask God to awaken deeper desire in us. I didn't put that on the notes, but it really is. It should have been first in this whole list of ideas. Um, ask God to awaken deeper desire in us because if we want to be drawn forward by beauty and not pushed from behind by pressure, we have to ask him to awaken that desire in us. So I'm just going to pray right now that God would awaken that one thing desire in our hearts. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.